Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the folks uh, on the Zoom call. Lord, thank you for uh, just just the Gospels, the four Gospels, and, and uh, just how we're uh, diving into them deeply and 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 uh, drinking deeply from them in, in a pretty quick period of time. And thank you for even the Gospel of Luke that that we have read this week and the way that it has spoken to us. And Lord, we do lift up our brother Michael as as he has been called to a a pretty strategic and important role there, at least at least in an interim basis there at Belmont Church. And we pray for just his teaching and those he's influencing there, and and even his meeting with the uh, the leadership at Belmont. Just that. Uh, you just continue to confirm in Michael what his calling is and what it is not, and that you would lead that church that has been such an important, um, has played such an important role in our city. Um, and I pray that you continue to uh, guide them and uh, and lead them. And, and I pray for even our conversation discussion tonight that uh, it would honor you and be beneficial to us. Um, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. But let me, let me say one more thing about Belmont Church. Uh, many of you know that Nashville is somewhat, I guess, I don't know if this is fair to say, Michael, but somewhat ground zero in some ways for the contemporary Christian music scene. Uh, I mean, there's certainly people like Larry Norman and others that were not from Nashville that were early on that, that are not connected to Nashville. But when you think of folks like Amy Grant and, you know, some of the very early Christian music that came out of Nashville, um, a lot of the, like Belmont was very strategic in the early days and they had a koinonia um, fellowship, uh, which was kind of where a lot of the Christian concerts were held. And of course, back then having cr contemporary Christian music in the church was a little radical back in the late 60s, early 70s. Well, and, and they, uh, were, they were a non-instrumental church of Christ. Yeah. So, they, so it, was they a, made, yeah. it was a huge paradigm. It, they were actually kicked out, kind of kicked out of the denomination for that. Yeah. That, yeah, that's right. But it's, it's, you know, so that's a little bit of the history of the church too. They, they, there was definitely a time when a lot of the um, Nashville Christian musicians in the area went to Belmont. And then probably later on in the 90s, Michael and myself, well, not that I was a musician, but Michael, a lot of his musician friends went to Christ Community Church and uh, a lot of, lot of them were there at that time. But, but early on, a lot of them were at Belmont Church. And Michael W. Smith, I think, was connected there. And uh, so anyway, Michael, I'll turn it over to you now. Okay. Well, we're, we're looking at Luke tonight. And Luke is... Um... I, Luke and John vie for my favorite gospels. Uh, one, you know, one day it's Luke, the other day it's John, um, because of uh, the, their vocabulary, their uniquenesses. And uh, so, so let's talk about Luke. Uh, remember from our last sessions, there are three things we listen to. We listen to the voice of the author, and we know a lot about Luke. We know a lot about Luke. So we listen to the voice of the author. We listen to the life situation. That's a problem with Luke. We don't, we're not so sure about the life situation. We, we gather things about the life situation from, from Luke, and we'll look at that. And then we look at the structure, and the structure of Luke is very simple, but it's a, a very interesting structure of the Gospel of Luke. So let's start with that first uh, uh, thing that we listen to, and that's the voice, the voice of Luke. Um, we know that Luke is a companion of Paul. Uh, he writes 28% of the gospel. Paul only writes 24%. You would think that Paul writes more, but actually Luke. Uh, so when they're in prison together, but the, between the two of them, half of the New Testament was written by these two guys that are sitting in the Mamertine prison. And I've been in that prison. I've, I've sat in that prison before. It's, uh, if you have claustrophobia, it's not a good place. It's not a good place. So 
Yeah, Luke writes 28%, uh, Paul writes 24%. Uh, Colossians, in Colossians 4, Paul refers to Luke as a doctor. Um, um, and 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, only Luke is with me. So at the end of his life, it seems like Luke was that faithful brother who, um, who stayed with Paul till the, till the very end. So he's a doctor. Um, and this is something that, that um, I've only, I don't think this is new for me, but I, I, uh, I put together pieces of other, uh, other people's uh, studies and I've come to, I won't be dogmatic about it, but I've, I'm, I'm fairly, con uh, fairly convinced that Luke is a slave. And why is he a slave? First of all, uh, most doctors in the first century, in fact, most professional people were slaves. Uh, at, at one point, uh, one of the Roman emperors, I uh, forget which one it is, but he, he closed the, the, the main medical school was in Pergamum. He closed it to slaves because so many slaves were becoming doctors. Um, so, and, and well, he is, so we know he's a doctor because uh, Paul says he is, but because he's a doctor, there's at least the implication that he is a slave and he has a slave name which is interesting to me. Slaves were named, uh, they were given hypocratic name. Hypochorism is basically a nickname. It's a shortened form. So my name is Michael. A hypochorism of my name is Mike, okay? Um, and you can hear it. Uh, Lucian is the, is the long form, and the shortened form is Luke. Um, Demetrius is a long name. Uh, one of the Paul's companions who was a slave was Demas. It's a, it's a hypochorism. It's a shortened form uh, of the name. So there's two hints. And again, I'll never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But there are two hints that uh, because of his profession and because of his hypocratic name that Luke may very well be uh, a slave. Uh, there's that wonderful passage in, in Acts uh, 16 where they meet, where the... the um, uh, 16 6 the uh, the they pronouns become we uh, so you might want to write that down we won't take the time to look at it but it's it's a wonderful wonderful little hint that they he's actually joined them at that point because the all of the they uh, they's become we uh, so we we set out uh, and that sort of thing um, uh, other indications he may be a slave. Uh, Luke, Luke really likes parables. He's, he's very interested in parables, not just in collecting them, but Luke gives us the setting in which Jesus tells the parables, and he'll give us the effect on the crowd. Not every time, but way more often than someone like Matthew. Matthew collects blocks of parables. Luke shows his parables working, and 16 of the 35 parables are slave parables, uh, which I think is you know, again, that's interesting. Uh, and we're going to see that one of his primary literary uh, devices is um, showing how he, he pairs his witnesses. John will show us long, uh, long passages where Jesus is talking to just one person. If you ever read a long story where Jesus is talking to one person, that's always John, always. Okay, Luke does something a little different. Luke will pair his witnesses, and I'll give you those references in a second. And he always pairs them this way. He, he'll, he'll show almost always a religious man who should understand Jesus and never does with another person, almost, uh, well, frequently it's a woman who uh, in the first century were very marginalized. 
and um, but but they always understand. So he, he pairs a person who should understand Jesus but doesn't with someone who shouldn't understand Jesus but always does. And I again, I, I think this might have to do with the fact that he was a slave. When I was working on the Luke book, I read a lot of slave narratives that we don't have any slave narratives from the first century, but we have a lot of them uh, from the uh, 18th and 19th century. And one of those slave narratives uh, from Kentucky, a slave was telling a story about coming back to uh, a plantation where he'd been uh, enslaved and now he's been free. Civil War's over, now he's free. And he's riding a horse. And he, he rides up to this old plantation and there, lo and behold, is the, the man who used to own him who's standing next to a split rail fence. Y'all know the split rail fences, you know, the, the rails that are stacked up. And the slave said this, and it, to me, it's, it really spoke a lot. He looked at his old master and he said, he goes, hey, the bottom rail's on the top now. See, that was his, his way of saying the world has been turned upside down. And that little story really, for me, became a key to Luke, because that's what Luke is interested in. He's interested in the fact that the world's been turned upside down, that the bottom rail is now on the top, that, that the, the religious people uh, don't seem to understand things, and the simple people, uh, the marginalized people, seem to really intuitively get uh, what Jesus is all about. Um, he tells us in one one, or he alludes to the fact in one one that he's not an eyewitness. And remember, one of the things we're trying to learn to do is take those sort of facts and ask, ask what they mean. And for me, what that means is he has gathered eyewitness accounts. And so part of that process is, is determining, be, you know, with the whole, along with the Holy Spirit, which one of those stories he's going to include and which ones he's not going to include. And one of the really fun things to do as you're reading Luke is try to understand or try to figure out who his eyewitness is. And the, one of the marvelous things about Luke is very, uh, almost certainly, I'll, I will almost be dogmatic about this, his eyewitness for the uh, accounts of the, the birth of Jesus and the, the, the early years of Jesus is Mary. Uh, there are old traditions that say that Luke wrote his gospel in Ephesus, and we know that Mary is in Ephesus with John. So there, again, there's just fragmented pieces of a puzzle, but uh, Luke knows what Mary's thinking and what she's feeling. He makes reference to her treasuring things in her heart. And uh, when Jesus is 12 years old in the temple, only Luke tells us that story. And I think he got it from Mary. Mary does all the talking in that story. Jo Joseph doesn't open his mouth. So again, I think there's indications there that um, Mary may be one of his eyewitnesses. And I think another one of his eyewitnesses is almost certainly one of the soldiers who was uh, involved in crucifying Jesus because he gives details that other gospels don't give. And um, so, um, so that's just a little... Um, you know, kind of extrapolation from the fact that um, he, he wasn't an eyewitness. He's a companion of Paul. And so what would you expect from a companion of Paul? Well, you would expect an interest in the Gentile mission. And that's exactly what you find. Luke is very interested in the fact that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. Uh, Simeon sings about it um, in his song. Um, and there's some, the, the 70 are, are spoken of, the sending out of the 70 and it was believed that there were 70 nations. There's some indication there that um, there might have been a Pauline uh, influence there. I think one of the most interesting Pauline influences of Luke is the structure of Luke. 
the, the Gospel of Luke is structured around one journey. From chapter 9 to chapter 19 is Jesus going to Jerusalem for the last time. In chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus resolutely, after the uh, uh, confession of Peter, Je Jesus resolutely sets his face for Jerusalem. And from 9 to 19 is the final journey. And during that journey, Jesus is in ever-increasing detail telling them exactly what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem, and they, they don't understand. In one of the Gospels, I think it may be Luke, uh, one of them says that they even discuss or argue at one point what rising from the dead might mean, because certainly Jesus doesn't, can't mean that he's going to rise from the dead. So there's this confused uh, group that's following him uh, along the way. Uh, uh, one thing I didn't mention, uh, his vocabulary, uh, he, he uses, a, he has a, a, a medical vocabulary. He uses medical words when he doesn't need medical words. My father was a doctor, and my, my father did that all the time. My dad, uh, one of my favorite memories of my father, I don't have very many of them because I, I wasn't around him a lot, but I remember him hanging a picture and driving a nail in the wall with his reflex hammer. In fact, I've got one right here. <laughs> you see the reflex hammer? That's what my dad was driving nails with, okay? And, and so he's using a medical thing because that's the only thing he's got. And that's exactly, that is exactly what Luke does. For example, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the introduction, he'll, he'll, he uses the word autopsia, autopsy. I've carefully autopsied everything. Um, when Zechariah in 163, uh, when Zechariah asked for a tablet to write down, because Zechariah can't talk anymore, he wants to write down his name is John. The technical word that's used there is a word for a medical term for prescription tablet. So why does Luke use that? Because that's, that's the word he knows. Um, only John and Luke, John baptizes for the remission of sin. And it's the same idea of, uh, we talk about the remission of cancer. Um, he speaks of demons convulsing him. He speaks of Peter's mother having a great fever. Um, and one of my favorite ones, uh, the, the woman uh, who, with the, the bleeding problem, uh, that all the synoptics mention her, in Mark 5, uh, 25, Mark mentions the fact that this woman had seen many doctors and instead of getting better, she grew worse and she spent all her money, right? When Luke tells that story, he doesn't give, that, give us that detail. And I think that, that what he doesn't say at that point, uh, um, you know, points to the fact that, uh, that he's a doctor. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of other indications. I think there are 500 words that Luke uses that no one else uses. So he has a very technical... Um, as an educated person, you would expect that. Um, let's see. The life situation uh, of his writing uh, is, is, is that's the problem. We're, that's what we're not so sure about. Uh, the best theory, and that's all we have is theories, is that Luke Acts, which is one book on two scrolls, uh, the scrolls were 36, the, 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 the maximum length of a scroll was like 36 feet. After 36 feet, they began to break. So Luke Acts is two scrolls, okay? And the idea is that Luke Acts is a document that was meant to be a cover letter for a collection of Paul's letters that were submitted at his trial. And, and, and where we get that is, first of all, his connection with Paul. And secondly, uh, if you, if you, um, uh, um, uh, Jesus' ministry is never represented as a threat to Rome. 
And when, when Paul tells the trial of Jesus, he really emphasized the innocence of Jesus. I mean, he, he kind of drives that into, uh, into the ground. And then when he takes up the story of Paul in Acts, again, Paul, the Pauline mission is never seen as a threat to Rome. It's always uh, the, the innocence or the, the fact that they're not a threat um, is always there. Okay. A couple more things. Um, when um, I, I said before that, that uh, Luke uh, it interviews eyewitnesses. Well, when, when I was analyzing his language, um, what I found was um, he is preoccupied with amazement. I call Luke the gospel of amazement. There, there are five different Greek words that can be translated astonished or amazed or even fear. Phobos is one of them. Uh, Luke is the only gospel that uses all five. And he will frequently, this is Luke and the tone of Luke and language. He'll frequently use two in the same verse. They were amazed and astonished. Okay. When you hear that, that's Luke. No one else talks like that. Uh, and I, I even the real, the serious geeks uh, count, count them. Okay. Uh, Jesus is said to be amazed 12 times in Matthew, in Mark uh, 15 times, in Luke six times. In Luke, it's 40 times. Um, not just Jesus, but uh, you know, of people who hear Jesus are said to be amazed. That comes up 40 times in Luke. So I call Luke the gospel of amazement. But okay, what, is it, what does that mean? What that means to me is as Luke has uh, interviewed eyewitnesses, their consistent testimony, even 30 or 40 years later, is that they were amazed. They found Jesus absolutely amazing, uh, what he said and what he did. Um, and here's some of those amazed uh, characters. Uh, in 163, Zachariah's friends are amazed at what uh, Zachariah writes down. In 218, the shepherds are amazed at what they hear. In 247, everyone is amazed by Jesus' answers. Uh, his, his, his parents in 248 are astonished when they find him in the temple. Uh, the people in his hometown in 422 are amazed at his gracious words. Uh, in 432 in Capernaum, they're amazed at his authority. I mean, you, this goes on and on and on. In 436, People are amazed that Jesus gives orders to demons and the demons amaze, uh, uh, have to obey them. That's just astonished. They're astonished. The disciples in five, nine are amazed at his, uh, the first miraculous catch of fish. In 526, the people are amazed that he heals the paralytic. Uh, uh, in seven, nine, you've been waiting for Jesus to be amazed. And finally in seven, nine, Jesus is amazed by the faith of the, of the centurion. And if you ever caught upon at the last minute to do a sermon, this, this preaches itself. The question, what amazes Jesus? Uh, faith or the lack thereof? Because the only other thing that said he's amazed that the people don't believe. So he's, he's amazed at the centurion in seven. And in 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 another place, he's amazed. I think it's another gospel. He's amazed that the people don't, the Jews don't believe. Sounds like John probably. Uh, the parents of the dead girl in chapter eight are amazed. In, four, in 943, everyone is amazed at the greatness of God. Uh, and on and on it goes. I have several more of these. I won't, I won't uh, do, do all of them. But, you know, again, it was, it, I, I, I did that list and analyzed that, 
that vocabulary and, and taught it and thought about it for a long time until I finally realized, you know, this, this is a result of him speaking to eyewitnesses who all these years later are still amazed. I find that really telling. Um, and I, I, I alluded to this, um, yeah, I, one more thing. I alluded to this uh, literary device that he uses of pairing his witnesses. And let me, let me point out a few of those to you. Um, and again, it all has to do with what the theologians refer to as radical reversal. When Jesus comes, the world, the world is really turned upside down. Uh, and there, the uh, key moment in Luke, uh, next to the crucifixion and resurrection, it may, it may be the most significant moment is uh, in chapter 10, and we'll look at that in a second. And it has to do with all this, okay? So the first pair, and I think it's, it's a kind of a paradigm, the first pair of witnesses are Zachariah and Mary, okay? Who's Zachariah? A priest. Where is Zachariah? He's in the holy place. Who's he talking to? Gabriel. Does he get it? No, he doesn't get it, okay? Very next scene, Gabriel goes to Nazareth, talks, Mary's probably 14, 15 years old. She's a woman very marginalized in Jesus' day. Um, not, um, that is over-preached because in Judaism, women were still revered and, and uh, looked up to in many ways and given responsibilities and that sort of thing. But, you know, you know uh, later, later in the rabbinic period, the rabbis would pray, thank you, God, you didn't create me a woman. Better that the law be burned than given to a woman. There was a certain, you know, uh, marginalization that were happening to women. So anyway, Gabriel comes to Mary with a much more unbelievable message, uh, you know, virgin conception. And Mary immediately understands and immediately accepts it. That's the pattern in Luke. Uh, a religious man who just doesn't get it. And a woman who intuitively understands exactly what Jesus is talking about. In chapter seven, uh, the centurion who is a Gentile, he gets it. The Jews don't get it. Um, uh, another great one in chapter seven is Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. It's, it's Zachariah and Mary kind of all over again. Simon the Pharisee. Oh, and here's another thing I didn't mention. In Luke, the Pharisees aren't bad guys. Uh, Jesus has meal fellowship three times with, with Pharisees in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Meal one and meal three are very congenial meals. Uh, meal one is Simon, the Pharisee. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, Master. Very congenial meal. Jesus doesn't call anybody names. He doesn't throw anything. Now, meal two doesn't go so well, okay? Because the truth is, sometimes he had conflicts with the Pharisees. But in meal three, Jesus is giving them friendly advice on how to uh, sit at the right place at, at banquets and not be embarrassed by sitting in the wrong place. It's not adversarial. It's a very congenial meal. But in chapter seven, Simon the Pharisee, um, who is very congenial and, and um, he just doesn't understand. But who understands? The sinful woman who's weeping at Jesus' feet, right? She gets it. Uh, Simon doesn't. Uh, in chapter eight, Jesus' family don't really understand, but these listeners uh, do. They are, in, a, in essence, sort of Jesus' new family. Um, uh, the the demon-possessed man, who after he's been, uh, the demon's been exorcised, he understands uh, in chapter 8. 
but the, the people who aren't possessed, the Gerasenes, they don't understand. In fact, they ask Jesus to leave. Uh, it even makes it into the parables, okay? Parable of Good Samaritan, who gets it? Good Samaritan gets it. Who doesn't get it? The priests and the Levites. See, the people who should get it don't. And the people who shouldn't get it always do. Uh, the parable of the banquet in 14, uh, the invited uh, declined and the uninvited who have to be dragged in. See, they're the ones who get it. Uh, the parable of the lost son, okay, who gets it? The scoundrel of a son who's you know, gone away from home, he gets it. Who doesn't get it? The elder son who's done all the right things. He doesn't get it. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus in 16. The healing of the 10 lepers. Okay, who gets it? The Samaritan. Who comes back? And thanks, Jesus. The Samaritan. He shouldn't get it, but he, he does. Uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. See, I can do this all day. Chapter 18, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Uh, Zacchaeus and the townspeople. Who gets it? See, the swindler, Zacchaeus, gets it. The people don't get it. Uh, the rich men and the poor widow in chapter 21. Uh, and he, then even in, in the resurrection, the 11 just don't get it. Who gets it? The women get it in 24, uh, 8 through 12. But, but the, the moment that's most significant, and I would uh, be fairly dogmatic to say this is one of the most significant moments in Jesus' life. Um, maybe... Tabern when he when he preaches in tabernacles in John 7 certainly the the resurrect the, the crucifixion and the resurrection but i would suggest to you Luke 10:21 is a moment one of the most significant moments in Jesus life that we've overlooked and what has happened is the 70 have returned and their mission has been very uh, successful and something is said of Jesus that's not said, nothing remotely like this is said of Jesus anywhere else in the gospel. Luke says, and Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. See, that is that radical re reversal that Luke is so excited about. You reveal it to people like Mary, and you've hidden it from people like Zechariah. You've revealed it to the sinful woman who's weeping at Jesus' feet, and you've, and you've, uh, you've hidden it from Simon the Pharisee. And, and the thing is, the thought of that, and I don't totally understand this, the thought of that fills Jesus with joy. That tells us something of, uh, of, about, you know, his value system or his heart. Uh, you know, Mary sings that you've, you know, you fill the hungry with good things. You've sent the rich away empty. His mother sings about that. And I, you know, I will leave that to you guys to discuss. But I think that is a fascinating uh, characteristic of Jesus. Call it his value system or his heart or his mind. He's filled with joy that, that God is turning the world upside down. And uh, so I'll just kind of leave you with that. But Luke, and I don't know who Luke, what, what eyewitness got Luke, Luke got that from, but um, I, I, I think for me, that's the real moment in Luke to see Jesus full of joy. And why is he joyful? That God's turning the world upside down. And that, that is Luke's deal, I think. That's Luke's deal. So that's all I got. That's all I got. Please don't disagree with me. I've had a hard day and I'm very fragile, but uh, <laughs> any, 
any any responses i'd be glad to i've got my notes here i can look stuff up oh and luke and luke likes songs those the songs uh in the beginning of luke i think are are fascinating and luke is the only the only true nativity matthew's not a nativity jesus is already like two years old so luke is the only true nativity and he's very interested in the fact that jesus is in poverty he's wrapped in rags and shepherds are worshiping him he's very interested in that part matthew's interested in he's a little boy and people who recognize kings are bringing him gifts that you give to kings that's matthew's understanding but luke luke likes that radical reversal okay I'll shut up. All right, thanks. Thanks, Michael. What about, uh, yeah, let's, questions you have for Michael or, or, or responses to your own reading of Luke? I was surprised how many people Jesus uh, brought back to life after being dead. Because, you know, we, we always think about Lazarus. Um, but there was a lot of people that were dead <laughs> that he brought to life. So I think as I read through Luke, I was like, I guess the things that stuck out to me, I wrote was, um, oh, I can't read my writing. I think it says power, <laughs> kingdom of God, prayer, seemed like a lot of prayer that, um, especially that one verse where it said, Jesus went to the lonely place, like, to pray and I thought oh wow because um, I guess this past Sunday we were talking about prayer in our zoom life group and then just about when do we really pour out in prayer and I think it really is in those lonely places and suffering places so that mm -hmm. was interesting to me um so I just kept thinking about where it said audacious same or shameless audacity the praying yeah. um and then just um to me it was like talking i guess you you mentioned i guess you said it better pairing so i guess for me i was looking at it as you have those that are trying to justify themselves and then those that understand the sinners that they are and yeah. understanding the grace and the mercy and repent repenting yeah well yeah i didn't say this but there there is a there's a school of thought that luke was actually a woman <laughs> because what did I say earlier? Well, 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 that, well, you know, I don't agree with that. No, no, but, uh, not that he's a woman. But I said when I read Luke before everybody got on, to me, Luke is my favorite because it was like having a conversation with a woman. It was like yeah. being Mary sitting at Jesus's feet. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sexist to think a, a, a man can't be concerned about women, but he's. You know, the, the women that follow Jesus, only Luke tells us about these women who, who support him financially. Um, and then again, there are these, in the pairs, the women are all, always the one who seem to understand things. But I, you know, I just think it's, it's a little, little bit ludicrous that then someone has to conclude, well, it, then he couldn't have been a man. He must've been a woman. If he cared about women, he must've been, you know, I think that's a little bit, that's giving us men, you know, kind of the short end of the stick. But, um, yeah, gospel, it's the gospel of women. Uh, definitely, he's he's very interested in in, uh, in marginalized the women that are and and w women and the poor. Yeah, I can almost hear his voice, Matthew. I get. I told you guys last time, Matthew. I just I still don't get a, a voice, but I can hear I can hear Luke and I can hear John. And I can hear Peter when I listen to Mark, because I think that's Peter's voice. 
but yeah, Luke is, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I made some observation about, you know, the trees and fruit. For some reason, um, Luke just keep mentioning about trees doesn't bear fruit if you chop away. I mean, at least three times in Luke 3, Luke 6, and Luke 13. Huh. Which is quite, you know, I don't see in other gospel that, that often or in that detail. Wow. Um, I've never seen that. It's just interesting. So is it, is, is it a parable that's repeated or is it a... Yeah, a, it's, a, it's a very similar parable that is repeated okay. about the uh, tree. You know, if you don't bear fruit, I mean, uh, you'll be, you be cut off. You know, if you look at Luke 3, chapter 3, chapter 6, and chapter 13, very similar parables has been wow. repeated. Um, when I saw that, I was like, that's, that's interesting. Why? Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still don't know why he, 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 he likes that parable. So, well, so, well, I mean, let's ask ourselves, I mean, if, if he's, is that because he repeatedly heard that from witnesses? Is that something Jesus talked about so often that he kept hearing about? I mean, I would, I would posit something like that. Um, it's, it's definitely possible. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it says, you know, in Luke chapter 3, it says, you know, uh, and even now the access also life at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, bring for no good fruit is sealed down and cast into fire. That's one of them. Yeah. And then you go down to Luke chapter 6. I mean, he says the same thing. For there's no good tree that brings a corrupt fruit, nor bugging a corrupt tree bring good fruit. And, you know, uh, it's known by its fruit. And, um, yeah. and, and then you go to Luke. 13 uh, is a uh, is very similar description about uh, bearing fruit and trees so mm. uh, anyway um uh yeah um so anyway that's just some some observation about trees that's all gotta look at that yeah uh, at least two but look look to 13 look 13 is a little different it's not a tree but uh anyway he likes trees and fruits and fruit yeah and, fruit bearing yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Anyway, yeah, that's just just an observation, and and also, I mean, he, he he actually did write a lot of detail about appearance to disciples, and also he has like what you were saying. He he read a long, he had a long Jesus childhood and John the Baptist childhood, and so on. I guess I, yeah. I'm hearing from you, and now I understand, you know, because he is you know eyewitness uh, with Mary, so that was yeah. Really cool, yeah. And maybe maybe Elizabeth, maybe he talked to her too. I don't know. Oh, possible, yeah, yeah. And then he's the only one who who described Jackius. Um, I don't know what significant there is, but uh, you know, uh, I don't. If I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I don't remember reading Jackius in any other gospel. So, um, well, I think there there's another gospel, and there are two there are two people, there are two men mm -hmm. that he heals when he goes through Jericho. Yeah, I think, yeah. Matthew, they said that's Matthew. He doubles the witnesses, and I don't think he names him. Ah, um, I see. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Those are just my observation that uh, that I wrote down. So yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I was talking about Bartimaeus, not Zacchaeus. Yeah, yeah Zacchaeus. Right. I I don't recall reading Zacchaeus anywhere yeah, yeah. else. But, You're right. Uh, yeah. So. Well, mm -hmm. I do think that you know uh, it does fit into that theme of the uh, the marginalized and the outsider because. Obviously, Zacchaeus is a uh, is a tax collector and robbing from his own people. So, of course, he'd be hated because the Jews would often yeah. see him as a traitor. And he gets it. Yeah, and he gets it. <laughs> so it kind of, kind of fits that Lucan theme of the people who shouldn't get it 
get it, you know. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and if uh, it was Bill Lane's theory that it, it was, of course, obviously it gets circulated in the church as Luke Acts does, but if it was initially for the trial, here's a Roman official, you know, who kind of gets the gospel. I mean, they, you know, who knows? <laughs> you know, you got to ask yourself, why does only Luke tell the story of this, you know, this, I mean, he's a Jewish guy, but he's worked for the Romans, and he's a good guy. I don't know. Hmm. I'm glad you brought out about the Pharisees because it did um, in Luke 13 30 where it said at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him leave this place and go somewhere else yeah. Herod wants to kill you and I thought what they're wanting yeah. to kill him so it did stand out to me that here they were trying to say oh you better leave he wants to kill you yeah and, I'm thinking, and he's, having, he's having friendly meals with them so you know, we've got, we've got Hillelites and Shamanites. We've got two schools already in Jesus' day. And uh, the, the Hillelites, Gamaliel was the, like the grandson or the son of Hillel. So, and obviously he was very uh, open to the Christian movement. Um, so, you know, there are good, there are Pharisees who are good guys. And, and Paul is, a, you know, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So there are all these connections back to Hillel. So I, and I honestly, I really hope this is true. I think when Jesus is 12, because uh, Hillel died, I think in 17, I think there's a chance that Hillel was in, in the temple when Jesus met with the, the, the teachers in, uh, in Jerusalem and Luke. I mean, I think there's a good chance Hillel was there because he was helping Herod uh, build the temple. He was the authority who told Herod kind of what, what needed to be done. So wouldn't that be cool? You know, one thing, and Mike, Michael can correct correct me if any of this is wrong. No, but uh, but um, you know, we tend to think Pharisees only as the negative side, side because yes, we often have Jesus calling them out. I mean, gosh, you look at Matthew twenty three, where it's a very pointed criticism of some of the Pharisees right. and all that. But you have to balance out that out with a couple of things. One is that often, uh, sometimes the Jewish believers who ended up following Jesus were Pharisees. Leadership of the early church is all Pharisees. Yeah, that, and then and then think about where the Pharisees differed with other people. Like, let's say, where they differed with the Sadducees about the resurrection and angels and those right. kind of things. Where did, they, where did Jesus line up? Well, he lined up with the Pharisees on, on Absolutely. those things. Absolutely. And, and, and well, uh, there's one place where Jesus says something and a Pharisee says, well said, Master. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That it sounds like Luke. I'd be interesting if that was in Luke, too. Yeah. So, so I, I think we do have to balance out that, yes, we see many criticisms of the Pharisees. Yeah. But often when it came to Pharisees versus other groups, often Jesus lined up with the Pharisees more yeah. than he did the other groups. Yeah. Even, even that whole kind of cultural, you know, hey, you know, how do you live in the world and not of the world? I mean, the, uh, the Sadducees handled it one way, the, uh, the, uh, the Sicarii and rebels, you know, they, they, they did it a different way. Jesus was kind of more like the Pharisees in the way that he kind of lived, yeah. lived some of those tensions out. And, and, and it's, I think it also speaks of how fragmented, I mean, even the, the Pharisees aren't a unified, they're fragmented, right? They don't agree about things. There are seven different schools that, are, that, they, that they mention uh, in their own, in the Mishnah. And yeah, so you got, you got the beginnings of a zealot movement that starts in Galilee, actually. And then you've got Sadducees and priests and Levites and, and seven different groups of Pharisees and Herodians, whoever they are. We're not even sure who they are. I assume supporters um, of Herod, but and now and now we got the followers of John the Baptist, right? 
And, and then we got the followers of Jesus and who knows what groups we don't even know about, but very, yeah, very fragmented time. There are, there's no such thing as Judaism in first century. There are Judaisms and that's Isaiah Gaffney, a rabbinic scholar. That's not a, that's not a Christian scholar. That's a Jewish scholar that says that very fragmented and it's, and it's obvious in the gospel. Yeah. Is it like denominations nowadays? Some, somewhat, yeah. It's it kind of. I would I would describe them more as, as movements. There's a there's a the beginning of a zealot movement. That's that uh, that doesn't come full bloom till later. But there's you know there's the beginning of the rabbinic movement. Again, there there's no such thing as an ordained rabbi in Jesus' day. That didn't happen until after ninety but there's the beginning of rabbinic Judaism, but we still have what we call Israelite religion, which is temple and priests and sacrificing goats and sheep and doves and everything else uh, at a temple. But after 70, that's, we're done with that, right? So that, it, it, you know, it's just amazing that Judaism still exists. So fragmented, but that's, a, that's another discussion. I'm a big fan of Judaism. <laughs> Other uh, questions for Michael or reflections from reading the Gospel of Luke? Yeah, I have a comment. Um, it's, it's not the first time I've read Luke, but I tried this time to read it really slowly and really thoughtfully, and I didn't move forward unless I at least tried to understand the difficult parts um, significantly. And I will say that out of all the gospels, he has the most occurrences where Jesus says something and I'm like, what? What the heck does that mean? <laughs> um, Jesus says some of the most strange things in some of the parables in Luke that um, he hasn't said anywhere else. I mean, you know, make friends by unrighteous mammon um, yeah. and uh, make sure you take with you a sword. We have two. Yes, that's enough. <laughs> Why are you saying this stuff? Um, yeah. But the, and so, you know, I, I looked up commentaries on some of them and some helped clarify and others, I was just like, yeah, I don't know. I think you're grasping at straws here. Um, but another thing that really stood out to me and it, it really hit me really hard was there are so many parables that didn't only mention hell, but mentioned, uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to try to euphemize the Bible, punishments for servants who didn't do God's will. And yeah. the way you read it, it doesn't seem like it's saying, hey, I'm sending you to hell. Um, when it's specifically speaking about certain servants, it, it just gives you the indication that, you know, there, there are three sets of people. There are the evil servants who go to hell. There are the righteous servants who do the will of God that are rewarded. And then there's these other servants who it doesn't seem to indicate they go to hell, but it, it indicates like a punishment. And, um, you know, I, and I, again, read up on a lot of commentaries because I was thinking to myself, oh, I'm pretty sure the Catholics use this for purgatory. Um, but I would like to see kind of the reformed view 
And, you know, a lot of them affirmed what I thought. And it was a take on um, <clears throat> like losing reward in heaven. Like in First uh, Corinthians, when it speaks about as we build on the foundation of Christ on that day, you know, um, the day will declare it, right? The fire will burn through wood, hay, straw, and what's left will remain. And though our soul is saved, um, we will suffer loss. And so I just, you know, as someone who does a lot of Christian ministry and leads small groups and Bible studies and tries to disciple people, it was just a very, there were a lot of scriptures that, that sat really heavy on my heart because I'm like, you know, I need to take very seriously my role whenever I'm leading someone in the faith and when I'm teaching and, and even just in my own personal life, you know, it's, it's not just a willy nilly thing. There's, there's a cost and, you know, everything gets paid back, whether it's you're doing the will of God or not, it, it all counts in the end. And it was just, it was very heavy at some points. Sorry if I made the mood go down. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's good. Hmm. I don't know if this is going to make sense. Um, we just started our Genesis study, and somebody brought out, because we were just in Genesis 1, but just talking about how we were created, you know, for God's purpose, and we were created before Adam and Eve sin, and yet God's purpose is still for us, you know, even though we have this sin, is um, his purpose will, you know, I don't know if it's going to come out right, but it just kind of made me think about what you were saying is that I think as a born-again believer, I don't think, um, I mean, we should be wise or growing and learning but i don't think there's ever this perfection that can be i guess accomplished until we're in heaven are you know yeah yeah well, i don't I know like, to i guess it would <sighs> well i think when we, when we co co comparing these two groups of people who get it the people who don't get it i so i i want to i want to uh identify with the people who get it who tend to be the marginal, you know, and Jesus will say, I was, a, you know, those sheep and the goats. I was a stranger. I was, you know, in prison. I was, you know, he was, he identifies radically with that marginalized group. And for me, it just, it almost lifts that almost to miss the, the point of mysticism, connecting with the poor and uh, identifying with the people who in the world's eyes don't, don't get it and don't count. And, uh, and, and puts into perspective, I mean, some, some of the people that we, I think, tend to adore a little too, you know, there's a, a little too much adoration sometimes. I don't know about that, but I, I do know the whole Mother Teresa distress, you know, Jesus in his distressing disguise that, that and Luke, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I was just looking at Matthew 25, that the sheep and the goats, same, same sort of thing. By the way, there's a great song. Great. We see you, you know, when, when did we, you know, both groups are surprised. When did we do that? Or when didn't we do that? They're both surprised, which I think is interesting. Sorry, I interrupted. So, so, uh, yeah, no. Like Cassandra mentioned uh, about, the, about the two groups of people, you know, that in this book, in this uh, look, you know, I, you know, like she said, I read this. 
by reading it all at once, you get this picture of how the kingdom of God was hidden mm. from certain people that asked directly point blank, is this the kingdom of God? Mm. And I'm going to read uh, chapter 19, verse 42. It says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in over in every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you in, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not recognize the times for, of your visitation. Yeah. You know, and that's, he's talking about the seas of Jerusalem, right? Yes. Uh, when, and that lasted like four years, right? Until they, they took it down and leveled it. Yeah. But it was hidden from them, but yet they didn't recognize the visitation. Yeah. And, I, and then I started thinking it, and then all of a sudden, I remember what, um, um, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9 and I don't want to go to the later part of Romans 9 but I'm going to go to the earlier part of Romans 9 which he said I am telling you the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart mm. and that's how kind of, kind, of, kind, of, kind of like I felt you know because it's, it's really hard to understand why things has been hidden. Mm. This is for I could wish that I myself were accursed, yeah. separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yeah, wow. He's got that pain because it was hidden from them. And well, Paul saw it. Well, that, that is a brilliant connection because both Paul and Jesus are lamenting. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. So it, it all of a sudden, it's just one right, my mind was straight there, right there. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, how can a finite mind like ours understand an infinite mind like God's? You know, it's, it's impossible for us to understand somebody. But the pain is there. And the sorrow is there. And we're not the only ones recognizing them. But I kept looking at it and the judgment that was kept, kept on coming. And it's just, oh, okay, now, but now. Now connect those two, that Pauline statement and that uh, Jesus lamenting. Now connect that with that Luke 10 passage. Yeah. Because yeah, it's almost like Jesus is joyful and it's the same idea, isn't it? I mean, yeah. isn't it? He, 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 we, he sees Jerusalem and he weeps and laments you, that you don't get it. And yeah. that when the 70 come back and they're, and the context is important, the 70 come back and they, there's been this incredible response to their mission and he's rejoicing that some people don't get it and that God's hidden it from the wall. I don't know. That's, that's a really interesting, I, I don't, I got to think about that. <laughs> well, it's mind boggling. Cause isn't it because they didn't get it. And that's why the gospel was preached to the rest of us, the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. I'm not equipped to answer that question. That's kind of a, <laughs> 
Roger. <laughs> yeah, you know, Teresa, that's that's one perspective. I I I've heard that before. Um, I don't know if I've you know uh, yeah that's one perspective yeah. I, i'm not sure i fully buy into because I, I i mean i think that god's intent all along was to to preach the gospel to the whole world right uh and and you know and i know, I know that view probably would not necessarily disagree with that but i think there is a view that says that you know almost to me makes it sound like jesus came for the jews only and only after they rejected that okay now let's go to the gentiles yeah oh no i don't mean it like that i mean i guess i mean it like from beginning, going back to from beginning to end, God has a set purpose and plan in place, and um, and that, you know, it, it's, you know, He knows from the beginning of He knows our hearts. I think it goes back to the the trees and the fruit, and the re, it keeps coming out because He knows our hearts and He knows our tendency and what we do and God being God has set from beginning to end and his purpose is yeah. going through, you know, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but can I ask one more question? This Luke 11 verse 50, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets um, from the beginning of the world. So that, verse through 51 is that kind of when i because i kind of put on the corner there it reminded me of when they were like crucify him and then when Pilate was like well but why and then they were like let his blood be on us does that kind of go with that uh that comes in the that's in the section of, of woes right in chapter 11 yeah 11 uh verses 50 51 yeah. Is that kind of why it's the, it will be it'll, it'll be held on this generation, the blood of all the prophets and everything, when they were like, let his blood be on us when they wanted Jesus crucified? Right. I've, never, I've never connected those those two, two, but this is definitely the same mentality. Yeah, we have no king but Caesar, which, which they said in almost the same breath, let his blood be on us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. But... Um, yeah, uh, what always interests me about the the woes against the Pharisees is that in, in the final one he 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 makes a uh, he turns it the, on the scribes at the end too. <laughs> uh, just when at the point where they think they're gonna, because a scribe isn't necessarily a Pharisee. Most of them were, but there there were, you know, there were scribes who weren't. And I've always it's interests me that in the last woe he turns on them. Um, I don't know. That's a that's a detail. That that's not what you were talking about, but. I have another question. I did do research on this, but I'm interested to hear your opinion or anyone else in the group's opinion. Um, uh, in Luke, it, it spoke about Jesus saying that he sent out the disciples to preach the gospel. Yeah. And then I asked myself, like, what exactly were they preaching? Because when we say go preach the gospel, we're including, you know, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... Well, I, I mean, know. I don't want to tell you what I read online, but I'm just well, interested let, to hear people's opinions. Let me let me give you a Jewish answer to that. Okay, um, the the kingdom. The good news is the kingdom of God has come, but kingdom is almost a verb in in Hebrew. It's it's reign. The good news is that the reign of God has been is has sort of come. God is going to reign, 
and he's going to do that uh, the, at, through the advent of his son. I mean, that, that's the gospel. That's the good news that they're, that they're, that they're preaching. Yeah, so I, mean, you, like, I, I just can't imagine what they were going around and saying. Were they just going around saying, hey, the kingdom's here, and everyone's like, yay. You know, like, I just don't understand, like, what exactly were they saying? Because remember, there were other times where people thought the Messiah came, right? So what, the, were, what was the difference? You go first, Roger. I mean, no, no, <laughs> I, I think the difference is that that Jesus is the true Messiah. And, yeah. and when they were saying that the kingdom has come, they were, um, uh, as followers of, of, of the Messiah Christ, I think they were not just, just announcing that, but I think they were tying it to the, who the Messiah is in the Messianic kingdom. And, and there, was so, huge, there was huge confusion about who the Messiah was. I mean, that, that for some people, he was going to kill the Romans. He was going to be a military leader. And there's, there's, to this day in Judaism, there's a teaching that there are two Messiahs. I mean, there, there again, that fragmentation in, in regards to the Messiah is still, is still part of Judaism. There's no one agreement on what the Messiah is. But when, in the Gospels, you know, he's a king, right? Because the, the wise men affirm he's a king. And he's, a, he's the shepherd, which ties back into David, you know, shepherding his people Israel. He, and he's the Messiah. But no, no one thought of Messiah as this, sac, you know, Passover lamb sacrifice. No one... No one but, thought that. But neither did the disciples because they didn't no. they didn't know yet. Yeah, no, no, I, they can't, didn't get it. I can't remember their chronology, well, but didn't Peter, didn't Peter, Peter say the, you are the son after they'd already gone out and preached the gospel? Well when P Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is okay. Guess what? That means I'm gonna suffer and die. And Peter says, That's never gonna happen to you. <laughs> that will never happen. That's not the Messiah. And so, and that's why Luke is important because at that point in nine, they turn and go to Jerusalem for the final time. And for 10 chapters, Jesus is explaining to them what it means to be the Messiah. And they still think, don't get it. Are you talking think, about when the 72, I, the 72 went out in chapter 10? Well, the 70, the 70 come back and they're rejoicing that people have responded to their message, right? And, 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 and we've got to believe that the response to the message is that Jesus is this person through whom God is extending his reign. The kingdom of God is, is here, right? They're doing miracles too, because they said, right. they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in yeah. your name. Yeah. Eloi, so, what say ye? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just um, wanted to point out that at this time in history, um, the Jewish Israel was really looking forward to receive the Messiah anytime now, anytime now, any minute now. And that is because the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, if we look him up and, and we look up those 70 weeks is divided into the first seven weeks, which is to, to the restoration from the day that the decree was issued uh, by King Artaxerxes to the, to the construction of, the, uh, of this entire city and the temple and the finish was, was assigned seven weeks, right? That's 49 years. And then from there on, it was another 62 weeks until Messiah would come. So that's another 460, 463 years. 
and the math was exactly where they were right there. But not only that, another thing that was very, very important is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will descend upon him and will stay on him, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, right? So we look at all those prophecies. That, that's why the baptism of Jesus was so important and the Holy Spirit descended and sat upon him. So the Jews needed to know that that happened. And when that happened, it was reflect, here's the Messiah. So that's what they needed to go prophesy. Hey, Daniel told us Messiah will come around this time. And the way that we will know that Messiah was here is by the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And we know that he was gonna have the spirit of truth and understanding and the miracles that he was going to perform. But not only that, then we have Isaiah chapter 40 saying that before Messiah comes, there's gonna be a forerunner. And who was the forerunner? John the Baptist. So we had John the Baptist and everybody will not deny that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, right? So they had the forerunner and what was he doing? Preparing the way for the Messiah. Telling people to repent from their sins, to have a clean slate, so he can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So this was the good news. We got John the Baptist. We got Messiah. Daniel told us Messiah was going to be here. And the Spirit of God descended upon him. Let's go tell that to the nation, to the, to the entire people of Israel. The kingdom of God is here. Very nice. The same word is used for gospel then and gospel after, like in the in the letters. And so, I mean, I mean, I know the answer to this is probably yes, but would it be correct to say that although the gospel they preached before he died was still the gospel, the gospel we have now is a more full, complete version. And so it's correct to assume that the incorporation of the resurrection, etc., is part of the gospel that he wanted preached. Yeah, the whole story, yeah. yeah. But it didn't make the gospel that they preached any less of a gospel. No, no. They just didn't have the full picture yet, but they were, they were getting there. Well, and I think, again, the part that nobody understood was that the that the cross and Jesus dying as the as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? That I don't think anybody saw that yet. You know that that was just beyond anyone's understanding. I mean, um, I mean, when I read all this, I mean, this is what came to my mind. You know, they just they're preaching the like what John the Baptist preaching that you know, uh, for the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven is near. For the kingdom of God is near. And that in their understanding, they're like kingdom of God when they come, is a more Jewish version of a mosaic uh, version of the gospel, where they come, he comes and heal, he comes to be, be with the poor, and to restore the kingdom of uh, uh, Israel. You know, in their mind, I'm kind of imagine that that's their understanding at that time when they're preaching this gospel. And then we have this power to heal, drives up demon and all this. That's how they imagine the gospel. What they're missing, like what Michael was saying is, the sacrificial lamb of the, uh, the salvation to, to uh, crucifixion. Uh, so I guess it's a, uh, like what you're saying, I'm mean, actually echoing what you say, Cassandra, that it is a, not a full version of the gospel as we understand today, but more of what a, a, a mosaic, uh, a Jewish version of mosaic gospel. Yeah. Uh, that's how I imagine that. 
and I think that you know the our brother who quoted all the passages from from Isaiah and Daniel, the the people who knew those forwards and backwards were the very people who didn't get it. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the guys. And and again, and so maybe when Paul is just grappling with that, maybe he talks about the the veil or, you know, how could they not get it? Hmm. You know, how could they, I mean, how do we explain that? Maybe that's what Paul is grappling with. I don't, I don't know. I've never thought of it that way before, but, but, but that, that takes us back to this whole Luke and theme because the people who get it are the simple people are blind people. And, you know, well, it's the repentant people. Well, that, and, and again, right. again, how, you know, what is, how does John the Baptist prepare the way? He makes you aware of your sin and that you need to do something with your sin. You he need to repent. Yeah. And that's how you get ready for the Messiah. Feel like he said. Cause that was something that was said over and over too, was the repent. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the only reason we get it is whatever the Holy spirit allows us to understand yeah. what, what we do understand or, you know, it's a gift. Cause the disciples didn't even get it until after Jesus was crucified. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd yet, also like it, to hear um, opinions on uh, when Jesus, uh, just before he went to the garden, was saying, um, before I told you, like, don't take any money, don't take your coat, don't take anything with you. But this time, take money, take swords. Like, yeah. Well, I'd like I, to can, I, can, I can give you Bill Lane's answer to that. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Dr. Lane's answer to that was the first time he sent them out, he said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that first, the first sending was to, uh, they were dependent on Jewish hospitality. They were only going to Jewish homes. And the second sending uh, is they're going out into the Gentile world. And he's warning them about what a dangerous world that is. To the point that if you got a, if you got a sword, if you don't have a, a sword, sell your coat and buy one. And to the point that when they get to the garden and a few, uh, you know, a few minutes after that, they get to the garden and they say, should we strike with our swords? Because he had just told them to buy one if they didn't have one. Uh, but Bill Lane explained that that's the difference between the two sendings. The first sending is, is Jewish hospitality and Jewish homes. The second sending is Gentile ends in the Gentile world, which could be a very dangerous world. So was he promoting self-defense? Um, yeah, I would think, I mean, to me, I, I, I'm uncomfortable saying that, but <laughs> I think to, to, in the very least, he's saying you're going into a dangerous world. Now, I, my, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and we were taught that he didn't really mean swords. He meant the word is the sword, so he really meant Bibles. <laughs> I have to remember as a little kid thinking, that doesn't make sense. Sell your cup and buy a Bible that doesn't exist yet. That doesn't make sense. I, I don't know. Does, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know. Does that make the? Does that make you? The rest of you feel uncomfortable? I mean, it certainly would make me feel uncomfortable if I thought Jesus was saying, "Hey, bring your sword so that we can go out and kill people." That would well, make well, me uncomfortable. I mean, but but, but the idea of Roger, if someone sees you and you've got a sword on your side, maybe they'll leave you alone. Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't know if I have a problem with thinking that. Hey, have have a sword to protect yourself. I, I don't know if I, I struggle with that as much. Well, that's what I was thinking. Self-defense, I could see, because prior to Jesus was with them is what I was thinking. And, you know, even when 
um, they were like, are you he? And he said, I think he said I am. And they all fell back, right? So I think yeah. his power, his protection was there. But now he was going to be crucified and he was going to be no longer with them. So, you know. They, it kind of contradicts the attitude of the New Testament and the early church. Because, I mean, they would be put in arenas and they wouldn't fight, you know. And so, I don't know. It's just a, such a strange statement to me. It, it is. It's a, and, and like I said, the best answer I've heard was William Lane's uh, answer. <laughs> it's not a definitive and conclusive, conclusive answer. It's not a justification for uh, uh, legal carry permits, as I've also heard that verse used. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you kind of think, though, like they probably tried not to end up in the arena? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, folks, before we wrap it up, any, any final thoughts or questions? So is John Lamb? John? Yeah, so next next week is John. So, so Michael, what, what should they be looking for as they read John? Oh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> oh, come on. Off the top of your head, you could have some. A I happen to have it right here. I happen to have my John right here. Uh, let me find my list. And while he's looking, uh, Roger, I just want to clarify the, the essay exam that we are writing. Yes. Is that to be handed in, not next Wednesday, but the next Wednesday? Or are we yeah, doing yeah, it yeah. on the next Wednesday? So you, it's, not due when, it's not due when we discuss John. No, you'll have, you'll have a week where you can give your whole week to uh, preparing your essay assignment uh, without a class. Uh, and then, and then the following week after that is when we'll start our theology discussion. Which, by the way, if you haven't picked up your theology book, I think there's still a few at the receptionist desk. Um, but uh, and and just remember, please be aware of the um, assignment is that you time yourself, and this is just a honor system thing. You time yourself, allow yourself an hour from beginning to end, and um, write. And I would encourage you to have a, an, an outline in your mind before turning that clock on because you will be amazed at how quickly that hour goes. So you'll need to have a sense of what you're going to write before that hour starts. Okay. So just to clarify, it's due the 14th. Um, yes, I guess that's two weeks from today. Um, no, no, no. The 14th sounds, well, what do we, what do we have on, you know what, I'll have to look. I know it's not due next week if that you're asking. It's due in two weeks. Now the actual day of the week, I, Karen, do you have it there? What does it say? Can you can you turn your uh you're muted right now, Karen? Yeah, according to the syllabus, it says um, next week, September the thirtieth, is the Gospel of John. October the seventh is the exam essay due assignment due exam on Jesus and the Gospel. One hour timed essay. There is no class this day, but Wilson Hall A. If that sort of thing. Um, okay. and October the fourteenth, the Trinity God the yeah. father right do the theology question everyone asks chapter three yeah so basically the seventh is when it's due cassandra so what do we do again on that essay what is it, it you should look on it, it should be on the syllabus syllabus but you will have one of two questions that you answer so not both but you choose one of the two one of them basically says um describe each gospel writer's con contribution unique contribution make in giving us a full picture and understanding of Jesus. Um, the other one is more of a subjective question. 
what are you learning about Jesus during this term and how is it impacting your life? And so the exact wording will be on the syllabus, but you'll choose one of those two and you'll have an hour to, to write out your essay. And that hour is during our scheduled class time? You can do it whenever you want to. It can be if you have it set aside during that time. We're not going to meet that week. It's just, you're going to write this on your own. And then just, you can send me uh, probably, in a, uh, if you like, let's say you write it on Word, you can just, why don't you just send me an email attachment to that? That'll probably be the easiest thing uh, if you do it that way. That's how many how pages and do you want, do you want double spaced or single spaced? You know what? Or does it matter what font? I'm kidding. Font 20. You know what? Yeah. Since, since, I, since I'm an old guy, uh, I would say make it, make it one of the larger fonts. Doesn't have to be super big, but you know, maybe a Calibri 12 versus a Calibri 10, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, or times yeah. Ro Roman times, uh, at least 12, I think. Um, and then in terms of single or double on this, this one, I don't care. Whatever's, whatever is more comfortable. I'm for joking. <laughs> hey, real quick on Luke before we turn, turn the page. I think Luke is probably one of the fullest of the gospels. I mean, it's just so rich. It obviously gives the, uh, it obviously gives the best illustration of the birth of Christ, but it also, I mean, if you look there, <clears throat> this isn't, this isn't anything that, um, this isn't anything that any conclusion that I drew, but there are like 10 chapters in the middle of Luke that you can't be, that you can't find in any of the other three gospels. So right. it's like nine through 19 or eight through eight through 19 and just breezing through them. They're really the preaching. There's a lot of red letters in there. It's almost all red letters. So really valuable stuff. Um, and that's, that's the journey to Jerusalem. That's the travel narrative. It's just a real full, really full gospel. I mean, I think if you could, if you had to pick one to survive, uh, that's the one. <clears throat> yeah, I do love the thought that Mary was one of the eyewitnesses sharing her yeah. story. I mean, because mostly whenever you read about Mary, she's treasuring these things in right. her heart and different. And so just the thought of her sitting there and sharing with Luke like, oh, you yeah. know, oh, and it is neat because like when you think about um, Zechariah, he was asking in a way like prove to me. And then she was just kind of asking in her innocence of, well, how can this be? You know, I'm yeah. a virgin, right? So that was really neat too. I like Luke. I mean, I like them all, but so yeah, I definitely like Luke. I like Luke. All right, Michael, what, what should we be looking for as we read the Gospel of John next week? Okay, first of all, my mindset, when you're reading the Gospel of John, you're sitting at the feet of the last living disciple of Jesus. Peter's been dead for 40 years. Paul's been dead for 40 years. John's the last one left. And so uh, to me, there, there, there's, a, there's a preciousness about uh, when I read John, uh, imagining him, he was referred to as the elder. I mean, he's this, he's the very, this very old man. So uh, that's that last living disciple business is very important. Uh, look for distinctiveness. 92% of John is unique. Um, um, you know, no birth narratives. And he always, he always replaces the stuff he leaves out. So I'll tell you what he leaves out. And as you're reading, you, you know, look for what he replaces. So no birth narratives, no parables, not a single parable in John. That should bother you. Uh, far fewer miracles. Uh, there are miracles, but far fewer. 
He leaves the Transfiguration out. He leaves Gethsemane out. He leaves the Sermon on the Mount out. He leaves the Lord's Supper out. Um, so look, look for those things. Uh, look for uh, what I call, this is what my, my thesis was on. Look for what, uh, what I call the motif of misunderstanding. And it, it works this way. Every time Jesus says something significant, and he usually, but not always, prefaces it by a double amen. Only in John do we have amen, amen. In the synoptics, we have one amen. And in John, we have two. But uh, Jesus will preface a statement with amen, amen. And the very next verse indicates the people he's talking to have no clue of what he's talking about. You know, says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? So it's not, not they, they don't kind of not get it. They way don't get it. And so I call that, uh, look for that. It's a motif of misunderstanding. And linked to that also uh, is the fact that John is based on the wisdom writings. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are based on the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus in, in, in the gospel of John is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is misunderstood. And uh, he gets lonelier and lonelier until uh, he's all alone on the cross. So look for the motif of misunderstanding. Look for the emphasis of Jesus as the prophet. And whenever it's the prophet, that's the prophet like a Moses from Deuteronomy 18. And then finally, John is, I like to say it this way, John's the only gospel that whispers. Uh, and by that, I mean asides. Uh, Matthew has one aside. Mark has 15. Mark's, Mark's asides are always translating Aramaic for us. Luke has six, okay? John has 59. There are 59 places, parenthetical statements, where John is explaining things to you. And look for those, because I really do think you're hearing the voice of this old man who's taught these things for decades, and he's the last one now teaching, you know, who can authoritatively teach them as an eyewitness. And, uh, you know, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Or, you know, Jesus wouldn't trust himself to anyone because he knew what was in a man. Those sort of things, that's John's voice, and you'll train your ear to hear that. So, yeah, those are the main things for me. Great. <clears throat> thanks, thanks again. So next week we'll have our final time with Michael, and uh, looking forward to that. And I know you guys will enjoy reading the Gospel of John. All right. Good night. Thank thanks. You. See ya. Have a great one. Thanks, Roger. Yeah. Hey. Um, I wanted to ask a favor. If there was any chance that I could hand in my assignment that weekend of that week, so the 11th, 12th. Sure. Just because, like, I have a really, really crazy schedule for the next two weeks. And no problem. No uh, problem. My brother-in-law's wedding next yes. weekend and stuff. And Yeah, no, no problem. Okay. Yeah, Thank that's not so a problem. Much. Yeah, that, that's not a problem. That'll, that'll be totally fine. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Okay, Cassandra. No, no problem. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.